You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. Hey, I'm Will, and they call me the doctor. And I'm Joe, the maestro. We host a podcast called Common Creatives, where we break apart the art we love to see what makes it tick. Basically, we give you the definitive take on whatever or whoever we're discussing. You don't need to go anywhere else. So check out Common Creatives wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, welcome back to the coronavirus stripped down sacred tension because the world is crazy. Life is crazy. Normally, these episodes take a lot of work um, up to can take up to five hours per episode. And right now, I just do not have the margin for that because I think my brain is just glitching. I'm in this perpetual like brain fog. So um, I still want to provide these conversations for you as we all, you know, manage this difficult time, but you're just going to have to deal with some lower audio quality right now. So if you hear my partner watch horror movies in the next room, if you hear any of my cats, or if Lucian confesses to murder or actually eating fetuses on air, then uh, that's not getting edited out. I'm sorry. <laughs> so um, this this show is completely unedited. And also, I have to thank my most recent patrons. So I'm hearing a lot of really interesting noises in the background. Is that on your side or on mine? That might be the wind over here. Oh, okay. This is an old house, and the wind is... Uh... There's high winds. Yeah, that's great. It causes it definitely, for a lot of whistling sounds and all of that. It, it definitely sounded like, you know, someone groaning in your closet or something. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> Sleeping in this place. Awesome. Okay, so, uh, but first, I have to thank my patrons. Um, my patrons are the lifeblood of this show and my work and also we've we've actually just recently gotten a lot of new patrons so thank you so much you are all really amazing i did not anticipate so many of you joining on um to help me uh get past two hundred dollars a month which is amazing so all of that money goes to support uh future projects and then also very basic mundane things like keeping my cat children alive and so every little bit helps. Um, and thank you so much for your support. So I have to thank Lady Lilith, Jen, Mal, Lisa, Willer Clowns, Kitty, Vaughn, and Stuart. Thank you so much. You are all amazing. Also, just a very, very quick notice. Uh, we're all struggling economically right now. Life is hard. And so... If you are unable to give, I completely understand. I really need you to support yourself and your family and take care of yourself first and foremost. So please don't feel pressured. Please don't feel guilty if you are unable to support my Patreon. I will continue to be here making free stuff for you. 
Uh, and when if you want to become a patron but are unable to, then you know maybe someday when all this blows over, you will be able to. But but take care of yourself first and foremost. All right. Well, with all of that out of the way, Lucian, hello, welcome back. Well, good to be back. Yeah. Not much has changed. Not much has changed. We are still in quarantine. I am still feeding people at the grocery store. You are you're still socially isolating, I assume. Yep, that's that's correct. Good. Has much so so you're still doing all the same old stuff that we talked about last time. Still streaming movies on cast, which is awesome. Um <laughs> and uh, I unfortunately haven't been able to tune in to any of them yet, but I assume you've been streaming lots of Neil Breen. We've only done one Neil Breen film so far, okay, but good. that really sticks out to people. You know? So we're going to have to do more of the, uh, the Breen filmography for sure. Yes. So Who I, knows? Maybe even, maybe even Wednesday. I think you need to do a lot of Neil Breen on cast. For people who don't know, Neil Breen is maybe the most horrifically awful, wonderfully bizarre filmmaker ever. Yeah, Pope Wonka on my Facebook, I posted that I was going to be interviewing you, and if you if they had any questions that people would like to ask you, and Pope Wonka asked, why is Neil Breen the most important filmmaker of all time? So he wants, I don't think, I think that's the only question for my audience that I'm going to ask you, actually. Why is Neil Breen the most important filmmaker of all time? Well, I think the importance of Neil Breen is the importance in seeing through a cinematic vision that is so deeply personal and uncorrupted by standards of uh, quality <laughs> uh, rationality, uh, basic sense. Uh, there's something very beautiful about about all of that. There and, is something you know, incredibly pure about it. Yeah, there, there, there's been there's like a genre of films made by uh, uh, people who are probably following their more detestable impulses, but it ends up producing the. Uh, some of the most amusing films I've ever seen. And those are that, that genre of film put together by mostly older, um, uh, financially uh, kind of stable, you know, yes. upper middle class uh, guys who want to uh, create these vanity films to that they write and direct, put themselves in the starring role. You know, uh -huh. often pair themselves up with uh, with uh, love interests that uh, might seem outside their their bounds in uh, in the real world, and oftentimes the scripts are uh, you know uh, not very competently executed, but usually highly that is, entertaining. That is such a gracious way to put it, not very competently executed. So so there is actually a filmmaker who I think you really need to know about, and his name is Donald James Parker, and he is the evangelical Christian Neil Breen. 
And oh, but yeah, I definitely need to check this yes. out. Yes, one of the movie nights we watched Second Glance, which I think was from Second Glance is great. Yeah, from 1992, <laughs> I think it was. I think most people would know it as the film where the the Jesus Man meme came from. Yes. Uh, that was like the the climactic line. The guy pumps his fist and says, "Jesus Man." Exactly. <laughs> It's, but it's one of those great kind of, uh, you know, it has those formulaic elements where it's kind of like a, a, a Christmas carol by Charles Dickens. This kid gets to see the world and what it would be like in the period of 24 hours if he had never been saved because he realizes that he's not seeing any action. Everybody sees him as this dork or whatever. There's a party coming up that he's not going to go to because he's too good a Christian. He gets pissed off and says sometimes he thinks he'd be better off if he'd never been saved. So then an angel comes along and he wakes up in this world where he, you know, he gets out of bed wearing a tie-dye T-shirt and a baseball cap on backwards. So you already know things have gone foul. Yes. And then yes. he just sees the, the living hell that the world is just without him having been saved. Up to and including his sister having been aborted, his mom is, uh, I think she's she's damn near a prostitute in, in that circumstance. Uh, his parents are divorced in any case, and she's running around with all kinds of men. And uh, there's his friend committed suicide. I mean, there's just, there's just no end to it. I love how in Christian movies, so I am a connoisseur of bad Christian movies. They are my absolute favorite. And one of my favorite things about the bad Christian movie, especially like the higher quote unquote, higher budget ones, like the ones that the bigger budget ones that come from pure flicks and whatnot, is that they have to incorporate about 15 different storylines. And each storyline is somehow a representation of like the depravity of the world. And so it's like you have the 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 struggling single mom and then you have the non-Christian Hispanic guy. And then you have the 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 Muslim family and then you have the the liberal vegan journalist and how all of these different lives, all of these different narratives are just intertwined and it all comes to this realization of they're just wrong about everything. <laughs> so, right. Don, so Donald James Parker, who is the Neil Breen of, fic, of, of Christian cinema, he, my two favorite films by him, one is called Gramps Goes to College, and it is about him, Donald James Parker, playing himself in a, in a fictional role that is very cle- a very thinly veiled version of himself going to college as an old man to rescue the college from those reprobate evolution evolutionary biologists and lecturing the kids on sexual purity and to not have sex before college and to not drink and he gets into like these evolutionary debates, creationism, evolutionary debates with the biology teacher who and he is so charming that he ends up wooing the biology professor and she gets really drunk and tries to seduce him. And it's it is the most beautiful hot mess I have 
I have ever seen. That's her way to salvation, right? She's just. It is. That is her way to salvation. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's similar to God's Not Dead, which is, you know, I think probably the most popular of the Pure Flicks offerings, but it's not. It doesn't follow anything close to what would be uh, a reasonable, realistic storyline for anybody with any sense watching, but there's a real fetish for that notion of going to the, the corrupted secular college campus and, uh, and overturning it, overturning the whole culture there with the power of the, the glory of the Lord. And, you know, so speaking of God's not dead. So there are that kid in that movie for people. Okay. Dear listeners, you have homework. You are going, you're all in quarantine. You're not doing anything except drinking too much and masturbating. So I want you to <laughs> watch. Add one more thing to that <laughs> add, list. Add one more thing to that list. You're going to watch Neil Breen. You're going, you're going to watch any of them will do. It just any movie by Neil Breen. Watch Gramps Goes to College and then watch God's Not Dead and then you'll be all caught up. Um, so what... What I find so disgusting in that movie is um, is how oh hold on let me let me try to collect my thoughts. What am I saying? Okay, yes. So when I came out as we're a we're on God's Not Dead still. We are on we are on God's Not Dead. Yes. Okay. Sorry, my <laughs> brain is I am so fucking exhausted because no right, editing. Yes, no editing <laughs> because at the store, the grocery store, it has been so fucking busy. It has been like Christmas every single week, except it isn't Christmas. It is the goddamn apocalypse, and people right. are shopping like the zombies are coming. And anyway, so I'm off today, and I've been so tired. I've just been incomprehensible. So all that aside, but when I first became a non-theist and when I became fairly public about it, all of these evangelical Christians who originally didn't give a shit about me all of them came out of the woodwork to try to debate me convince me but their talking points seemed like they had gotten them from some online seminar from some apologetic course about how to talk to an atheist and it just the things that these people would say to me reminded me of the things that kid said to the atheist professor and it's like they were oh, just right. yeah, no, they, they were just the looking for this chance it was at the end he said to the professor why do you hate god and, and he says be the unanswerable <laughs> ultimate question that really shook yes. his his faith in atheism to to turn the tables on atheism like that as they believe they do but it was you know then you know not to offer spoilers to anybody um, if you if you want to watch this film and not have a spoiler, then don't listen to this part. But it's just remarkable to me that at the climax uh, of the film, uh, the atheist gets hit by a car. A couple of missionaries uh, <laughs> get out of the car and they tell him, "Well, you're you're fading. You know, the best thing you can do now is give yourself over to Jesus." So the atheist professor says, "Finally, you know." fuck it, okay, fine, Jesus, and then he dies, and they're like, this has been a beautiful moment, and that's <laughs> and that's supposed to be the heartwarming end of the film. It's, and atheist, it's, he's converted, he's, he's okay after all. 
It's so know. disgusting. It's so it's like he died horribly in a being run over by a car, but at least he accepted Christ and suddenly that's the feel good ending. And then there's also the other part of it where it's where um the the main character kid asked him what who hurt you or what what happened to you you know something something like that where it's almost like the this assumption that the neutral state of humanity and i and i right. don't think that this i this is actually like a theological position i mean like um like romans one uh god has revealed himself to all creation you know his works are known through all of creation and all that he is it is obvious that god exists and so it's like this this assumption that the natural state of humanity is to believe in god and right it's average behavior right yes to, and and you, you have know, to otherwise. be and it's like you have to be hammered out of that by some horrible traumatic event and if you just resolve that that inner wound that you know someone in the church was mean to you one time if you just resolve that then all those problems will be solved and you can come back to christianity and this is actually something that has come to really annoy me where you know christians will say why did you leave Christianity? And I tell them. And then they're like, oh, wow, you must have been really hurt because you were gay. Let's talk about that instead. <laughs> well, I, you know, when I was playing Second Glance for a movie night, I was, uh, with a lot of the movies I've been playing, they've been older for the most, Neil Breen movies have been probably the most recent movies I've shown because a lot of Bad films that are fun to laugh at came from the drive-in era. You know, yeah. uh, recently we watched a film called Blood Freak, this kind of perplexing film about a guy who smoked marijuana, which brought him onto some downward spiral. Um, and then he started working at a turkey farm where they were using experimental drugs on these turkeys to make them yield more meat or something like that. But he was their only human test subject on eating these turkeys to make sure it was healthy. Uh, and this caused him, I guess it was some kind of comorbid factor with the fact that he was smoking marijuana or whatever, but it turned him into uh, a turkey monster, a part man to part monster, <laughs> turkey headed thing uh, that needed to survive by drinking the blood of drug addicts. So he goes out and starts drinking drug addicts. It's a really bizarre film. That's great. But I was worried that some people who felt damaged by their uh, by their past indoctrination, by their religious upbringing or whatever, would have a difficult time seeing the humor in the film. You know, film like Second Glance or would have sure, difficulty sure. if we show like God's Not Dead or whatever. But uh, everybody seemed to like it. And I would encourage people if they listen to these concepts and think it's just too soon might still be worth stopping into one of these movie nights and see what everybody else finds funny about it. Maybe that's cathartic, you know, maybe that's kind of a, a path to healing to understand, you know, that you can look at this stuff, confront it head on and see it for how ludicrous it is. Because I mean, once you get there, it is fucking funny. Yes, it is. <laughs> I mean, I, and I think that's why I love bad Christian movies so much, um, because 
it, it's it's therapeutic for me to watch these movies and be able to laugh at it. It's kind of like a, a disarming of it or a defanging of it. Um, and, and it's really this cathartic healing experience for me because I, you know, I watch these Christian movies and I'm, there's this, this combination of, of just sheer mortification and horror. Like, Oh my God, that was me. I used to say, stupid shit like that when I was in high school but then being able to step back and laugh at it and being able to put it put it away put it into my past I don't know it's it's really healing and actually along those lines um along the lines of recovering from religious trauma so now that we've you know spent the first 20 minutes of the of the episode talking about movies <laughs> by the way everyone go in um uh, go and hang out on his movie nights. He's doing it once or twice a week now, I think. Yeah, I've been doing it pretty much Wednesdays and Saturdays seem to be my time slot. I'm trying nice. to uh, keep on top of when other people like uh, Baphonet and, uh, and you know, G Greg Stevens also has been casting a lot of uh, films. And anybody else who I come across who tags me on Twitter saying that they're, they've got something scheduled, I... Uh, I amplify that so, uh, you know, just so people have something to do. Exactly. So people have some kind of sense of what the schedule is because, you know, we're all isolated in watching these movies, but there's a completely different feel to it when we're all watching at the same time and commenting in real time together. It, it really feels like a, like a gathering. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so go, um, go follow his, uh, his Twitter account at Lucian Greaves, and he always posts it there. So speaking of recovering from religious trauma, so you had this really fantastic article recently on your Patreon, and you've opened up your Patreon to the public um, so that, you know, people who are not able to pay can still enjoy your really excellent work, your podcasts and your articles and you have this article called, but hold on, actually, I don't have the, the title. What was it? But What about Islam? There you go. What about Islam? And so you tell this, you, you start with this story, and, it, and here's what you say. Recently, a member of the Satanic Temple posted a picture of herself in which she was holding burning pages taken from the Bible. Somebody replied, Ramadan in a few weeks. Any plans to burn Qurans? She replied that extreme Christianity in particular had caused a lot of pain in her life. Burning a Quran would not be personally meaningful to her. Didn't think so, the inquirer returned, looking forward to the day when the mall goths of the world dare to make an actual stand. All right, so... So why, so I thought this article was great. Explain why this story in particular kind of inspired you to write this article. I think it was more the timing of that one that made me kind of like focus on that particular one. But it's a, uh, it's been a common question throughout the history of the Satanic Temple where whenever we do anything, even when we were even in our monument campaign in Arkansas, you know, our campaign to put a monument up on the Capitol grounds where they put up a Ten Commandments monument and said it's 
not an establishment clause violation because it's not a government endorsement of a particular religion, but uh, you know, any private entity can can uh, donate a monument of similar significance. And of course, we try to donate ours, and they're trying to keep it out on all co- at all costs because it's just because it's satanic. Crossing that line and allowing government uh, endorsement of a particular religion, exactly what they said they weren't doing. But um, in uh, in in those cases, you know, even even then, when it's a Ten Commandments monument being put on the grounds and not some kind of uh, Islamic monument of whatever type, uh, I'm not exactly sure what that would look like, given kind of the prohibitions against uh, imagery and iconography and and Islam. And I don't know what the limitations of that are, but that's beside the point. In any case, we get that question: Well, what about Islam? Why aren't you? Why don't you pick on the Muslims in the same way you're always picking on the Christians, uh, as though there's a similar, uh, comparable theocratic movement to install uh, Islamic dominance in the United States, or if not the United States, as though the Satanic Temple has the power to uh, enact some kind of meaningful movement in places where we have virtually no presence like Saudi Arabia. And I wonder sometimes what these people who are asking this question really believe about the state of affairs in the United States or the capabilities of the satanic temple. And it's just a prevalent enough question that I felt it was worth me writing an essay to explain my answer to that, to take the question seriously, uh, because sometimes I don't think the question is asked in bad faith, which is odd, oddly enough, because sometimes if there's a question that I think is sufficiently dumb, I think it's just asked uh, in a, as a way to be provocative. I try to make that assumption less and less as time goes on, the more I see how misinformed people can genuinely be and how uh, how unrooted from reality their questions seem to be derived from. But, uh, uh, you know, so this essay was finally my effort to do that after all these years of constantly getting the what about Islam question. I think the picture of the TST member burning some pages from the Bible so it finally made me resolve to write that essay once and for all having seen that question posted in that way. Because I think the person who asked the question about burning the Qurans, if I understand correctly, is somebody who's followed my account for some time and left non-hostile responses to a lot of things I've said. And so I was surprised by that, that response. And I also thought that it might have been indicative of that being a genuine question on the part of some people so I, I went on to explain, of course, that, you know, the, the personal meaning of burning a Bible to somebody who can grow up in the environment where the Bible has a presence and has some kind of uh, oppressive meaning for somebody coming away from that particular brand of superstition, but also to explain on the other level uh, how it's a Christian-flavored theocracy that is initiating its coup in our part of the world today. And, uh, you know, I guess I went too long feeling like some of these things didn't need to be said, 
And even when I wrote this essay, I kind of thought maybe it was going to be kind of a throwaway to a lot of people and it wouldn't uh, generate much interest from the readers. But uh, the response has been, you know, it's a, uh, it looks like it's one of the more read of my, uh, of my articles on that platform at this point. It's fantastic. And because I think it really, I think that there are some really hard to grasp and articulate subtleties within the quote unquote satanic experience. This, this specific communal satanic experience that we're that those of us who are in the satanic temple are in. I think that there are some things about it that are really difficult to articulate. Um, one of which being blasphemy is not for you, it is for us. You being the Christian. Blasphemy is not for you, it is for us. And I, I think that that is one of the really, really hard things. And so, and I think that question that this person on Twitter asked, um, you know, what about Islam? You know, Ramadan is in a few weeks. Do you plan on to burn any Qurans? Fundamentally understands how we perceive blasphemy, which is that blasphemy is a cathartic experience of self-empowerment for us and literally, and really has very little to do with with Christians or whatever religion that we're from, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that, that's why I related it to the joke that John Waters told. Uh, yes. John Waters had said, I thank God I was raised Catholic, so sex will always be dirty, you know? And then I said it would be quite a different uh, joke if he were to say, I thank God for Ramadan because it makes the four-course meal I ordered feel extra decadent. Then it would just kind of be this spiteful uh, aspersion towards some religious practice. I mean, there, it would be cynical. Right, right. It, it, I mean, I, I, that kind of humor, fine. You know, that's uh, it's ju it's just a different kind of joke. You know, it, it and I think uh, people can understand the psychology of those two different statements, if they put themselves in that position. He's not saying that, you know, he's glad that sex is dirty uh, because Catholics deem it dirty, because they know that he's having sex and they're offended by it. I mean, that in itself, that could arguably be funny as well. But you know that that's not what he's saying. He's not saying he's going out and advertising the fact that he's having sex to Catholics just because it pisses them off. He's saying that he was indoctrinated to believe that sex was dirty, and now he gets that kind of thrill from engaging in something that was, you know, beaten into him to be taboo. You know, there's that kind of uh, perverse pleasure and, and, you know, breaking those taboos, breaking from that confinement. And that's very similar, I think, to the, uh, the feeling people get from engaging in, you know, symbolic blasphemy. And it, it's interesting to note, or, you know, maybe not, but the uh, the TST member who was burning pages from the Bible, it's not as though she had tagged in that picture people like Franklin Graham, you know, just to piss him off. She tagged some people from her community, including myself, 
you know, and this wasn't, wasn't something that I don't, I don't think that she had any, uh, designs of this getting out into the, into Christian communities and, and driving them insane or, or, uh, you know, stirring up outrage or anything like that. It was more, uh, her way of kind of showing solidarity with her own community and just, you know, showing what she was up to. Yeah. And showing solidarity with those who've been hurt by, by Christianity. I mean, it, it reminds me of that early Marilyn Manson concert that he did, I think back during the Antichrist superstar era. I was, even when I was a little flamingly gay missionary boy, I loved Marilyn Manson. I think because he, he, you know, I was like this very evangelical, charismatic, flamingly gay, so deep in the closet I was in Narnia, but like, <laughs> and, and trying so hard to repress it, but failing. And I think listening to Marilyn Manson kind of connected me with some very real and raw emotions and, and feelings of hurt that I had towards Christianity. And, you know, the, from uh, the Mr. Superstar song, I think, where um, he does that live performance and he's ripping the pages out of the Bible. And this realization that, that I mean, knowing Marilyn Manson, that might have been to provoke, I mean, it probably was to provoke Christians, but it was very much an act of catharsis for me as that kid listening to it. And I was a missionary at the time. I was a, and for me, there was this weird lack of conflict between that, between um, feeling validated by Marilyn Marilyn Manson ripping pages out of a Bible and um, acknowledging the trauma that had been done to me by the church while also still believing in Christianity. You know, that to me was not a contradiction, and it still isn't a contradiction that I am a Satanist who works with Christians, (laughs) you know, because I think I, you know, you see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, but to get on the... uh topic you know you open a whole door there about having that kind of experience going to a Marilyn Manson concert because I've started working I think as most people know on a musical project with uh with some very experienced competent musicians uh both of whom who I started out with is just this band of three of us uh the other two are in a band called Planet B uh, one of them was in a band called The Locust and uh, in Dead Cross with Mike Patton, who's the uh, uh, front man for Faith No More. And uh, we were we originally had this idea where we do more of like this spoken word album where I would do the spoken word. There'd be some kind of musical background and it would be kind of like, uh, you know, the LaVey's Black Mass album. Whatever you know, something just kind of to deliver a message and have that kind of musical accompaniment. Mm. Then when we started working together, things got much more, uh, both more musical and more abstract. And we started really experimenting with things. And now at this point, we've really put together we think a, a great album that will, you know, regardless of uh, people's 
backgrounds on beliefs, whether they have an attachment to the Satanic Temple or not. You know, some people are just going to really like this album, we think. And now we've recruited as our drummer, uh, Dave Lombardo, who is also, the, you know, a drummer for Slayer. And in fact, if you look up like best drummers of all time, He's, he pops up pretty yes, much he does. on all those. Yeah, he pops up on those lists. So, you know, we we even though we haven't released an album yet, I think if we were out touring just on this, you know, on the novelty of the band I'm in writing the, the lyrics and doing the vocals for, and you know, having Dave Lombardo and these these other characters working on it, I think we get a a good turnout. And uh, we were supposed to go on tour, you know, uh, late last month, about you know. Just over a month ago, we would have started going on tour in the West Coast, and we were repped by Live Nation, so we would have these solid guarantees. Anyways, I was thinking in all of this when we were talking when we were talking about the kind of theatrics we would use on the stage, and some of the people I work with uh, in the Satanic Temple were offering support. You know, Kim Larue was three uh, D printing me this great. Uh, mic stand to use, you know, all this kind of thing. The uh, pageantry, I think, really, really affects people. And it's the pageantry, I think, that really brings people into the churches week after week and convinces them that there's this thing greater than science can explain and greater than them because they have that kind of inexplicable feeling it's a motive quality just in the environment the music the crowd all those kinds of elements converge to make them feel like they're part of something bigger and i was just considering when i was listening to some of the tracks that i think are particularly well constructed and meaningful uh thinking of some of these people who for whom the music will speak to them first and then to mm. find that there's this entire movement from which it's derived. Uh, it's almost frightening because I think some people, you know, this, this will really catch them at the right time and they'll uh, define their lives thereafter by this exposure. And I've, I've taken that very seriously and have tried to make lyrics and uh, create messages that uh, not just express that kind of angst and conflict from where we come from, but also at least give some kind of light ahead for those affirmative values. You know, and that's kind of a difficult thing to do with with material that's evocative of a certain type of, <laughs> you know, kind of dark aesthetic that I gravitate towards but I think we did a really good job of it. And uh, uh, it, it'll be interesting to see the outcome because I kind of, I, I well, I don't just kind of, I, I openly do fear fanaticism, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you, you fear fanaticism in your listeners, you mean? And in, in the people who might listen to the album and might, uh, or, or in people who oppose you. Oh, both. Sure. You know, I mean, you, you see it go both directions. I mean, the uh, some of the uh, messages one gets that are supportive but get everything wrong or take everything to an extreme <laughs> can be just as uh, disconcerting as the messages you get that are 
opposed, yeah, you know, violently abs- opposed absolutely. to as well. Yeah, you know, and you were talking about how the 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 ritual aspect of say a music concert um the uh, oh well you used a specific word um the pageantry there you go thank you the (laughs) i can't use my words tonight the the pageantry how it is so all enveloping and and it really does create a world. It, it's almost, you know, I love how Joseph Laycock in his book, uh, Dangerous Games, he, um, he talks about how religion and games, role-playing games, are both an annex to reality, uh, where it's like this shared, imagined world where you enter together and then you experience this incredible transformative reality that isn't objectively real, but that isn't to say that it is unreal. It's real because we experience it. It's real within us. And, uh, and then we exit that annex to reality and we return to the mundane world, to mundane life, transformed by the experience and i and that is what concerts do that like uh i think the band ghost does that so well uh marilyn manson does that so well and i it's also what the catholic mass does it's what the black mass does it's what dungeons and dragons you know it's yeah and certainly not try and take anything away from ghost shows or marilyn manson shows i think ours would be different and more effective uh just by what people know about us and what people will know about my position within the satanic temple and the fact that we've put together some tracks that I think are so effective in setting and overtaking an entire room and setting its own mood entirely. And we were going to do uh, certain interactive, interactive, ritual type theatrics during our shows uh we did an on baptism track and we were talking about and shiva honey who wrote the book on on rituals that recently came out the devil's tone hey and she's coming on next week no oh she's coming, well, she's, she's coming on she's tomorrow doing, she's doing backing vocals for us as well oh great and we were you know when we were looking at going out on tour and thinking that this was going to happen before this pandemic broke out uh, you know, we were discussing with her kind of cycling people across the stage for on baptisms and that kind of thing. And I think that kind of like breaking down of the barrier between audience and uh, and performer, making it an interactive experience where people feel they're kind of uh, uh, involved in something more than a concert that can be really, uh, really powerful to certain people. I 100% agree. Um, by the way, when is the album coming out? Uh, I wish I knew. It's kind of okay. frustrating because I, I, I really wish uh, I really wish I had a, a release date on it now. Some with some things, I just feel like if I had a date, I'd be much happier. Um, Lombardo was adding his parts to uh, like the final three tracks, I think. Uh, and he said he's been, I, I guess, uh, for the most part, he's uh, he's late night working on this stuff. Uh, you know, he 
he sets up at home. And we're all working at home right now. We mm. put together one of the tracks entirely remotely. So one of the tracks, my vocals have been entirely recorded uh, in Salem, uh, separated from the rest of the band. And I, then I send over these, you know, the sound files and we work with them from there. Uh, but I have the equipment I need to make sure it's of the highest quality kind of uh, recording I could do uh, anyways. So nobody's going to notice like a, a difference in quality or whatever else. But it's it's uh, it's good that we can do that. And we just sure. have to get everything mixed, mastered, and then we uh, we find a label. And then I think just after getting a label, it's probably somewhere around six months before the album's released even then. But we would have been doing live shows now if it weren't for the pandemic. Right. So so I'm assuming that the release would have, you know, been after kind of this buildup of tours and shows, kind of promoting it and all that. Yeah, yeah. It would, it would have been interesting to see what the turnout would have been uh, for our initial kind of touring it would be you know we have played with the idea of releasing some individual tracks uh as digital releases um and that was that was actually what we were going to do with the the one track we put together entirely remotely um we didn't realize the the magnitude of our creative output when we get together i had gone to san diego gone into the studio and we were writing and recording all at the same time. In the course of two weeks, we pretty much put together the the skeleton of the entire album. And then I came back uh, for, oh, I think, a week and a half. And we did some more, re-recorded some stuff, restructured a lot of things. And uh, then I came into lockdown in Salem. And uh, our initial plan for another track, I was kind of working out a draft for was that it would just kind of be a digital release we ended up liking it so much we're gonna put it on the album as well and now we're getting to that point where we might have to cut some material out or we might have to consider you know depending on uh the timeline what we want to do maybe we'll do a double album or have another album lined up by the time lockdown is over oh that sounds great. And I just, I sigh deeply because I just signed onto Twitter and started glancing at some of the questions that people were asking. And I'm, I think I'm going to stick to just the Neil Breen question for this episode. Um, <laughs> that, that bad or? Some of them are, I mean, just, so sometimes when I have a, sh sometimes when I bring on um, another Satanist, I, post about and be like hey i'm bringing this person on do you have any questions just to see just to like test the waters and see how many people in my audience will ask the same old stupid questions um for example mr greaves uh oh wait no let's not let's not let's not do that one hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, let's see here uh, listen, Lucian Greaves, let's cut to the heart of the matter. Is it all a giant exercise in trolling? Supposing for a moment that it was, would you be able to admit it? Okay, so this is something that really, that I find really hilarious because people assume so hard that I'm conning them that even when I completely earnestly am like, no, I'm not doing this to troll you or offend you. This is my sincere 
you know, religious conviction. I am a Satanist. This is my religious identity. It is entirely authentic. They go one of two ways. Either they assume that you, Lucian, and company have, like, bamboozled me so much that I've just, you know, fallen into your con and that I've <laughs> and that I completely believe sincerely something that the satanic temple has just or they assume that I am somehow unable to admit that it is a con and that they see through or that that I am unable to admit that it is a troll and that they see through my um you know, my self-delusion. It's so bizarre. It's really weird, but we don't have to talk about the questions. <laughs> that, uh, that you know, I, you can't say it's a dumb question necessarily. It's just, I, I come to think that, you know, I used to view those questions as antagonistic, but I, they're, they're mm. too prevalent and come from too many, you know, too wide a variety of people for me to dismiss it that way. But mm. it's, it, it is difficult for me to get into the answer to that because I feel like I get into the answer to that and so many of the things I write and so many of the things I do and so many of the lectures I give and so many of the interview questions I answer. And even I think, uh, what about Islam is an essay that gets right back to that very topic. And I think if yeah. people read kind of like the totality of these essays and everything else, uh, they'll, and if they don't still see the answer, I, I just don't know that there's anything I can do to articulate it to them. And I still think it just comes down to that inability to understand how something like this can be meaningful to anybody in a non-theistic fashion. That idea that uh, being yes. non-theistic means that all your symbols and all your parables and everything else are entirely arbitrary and could be changed out for anything else and be equally meaningful so all you are getting out of satanism is the antagonism towards uh towards christians and the christian religion which uh you know we know that's not the case and i've been trying to express that uh from day one it's still an uphill struggle i don't write people off though when they don't understand those answers or don't understand one essay i still think given time in seeing the totality of our work and seeing the cumulative nature of our actions and our positions, our, our statements, my essays, you know, interview answers, all of those things, it can, I think, you know, it can begin to dawn on people. It can begin, you know, you never know when it'll strike either. Absolutely. You know, you plant that seed, you know, they might well, suddenly also, you know, listen to this interview and then, you know, have something of a transcendent event at a concert or witness the pageantry at another thing. And then, you know, relate it to something that was said between you and I that kind of contextualizes everything slightly differently, but just mm. just enough to make them start really understanding where we're coming from. Yes. And yes, I 100 percent agree. And I have several methods to do that. One is. I, I feel like I have this pretty dense library on my blog now of just all this stuff I've written. And so I, I have an FAQ page of, um, you know, just all the regular questions I get. And, and so when people have questions, I, 
I say, well, you know, I please um, read this article I wrote. It might be helpful. And then if you have any more questions, please let me know. And then, you know, we take it from there. That's one method. But I've been really surprised by the number of people who have come around. <laughs> like one of my very good friends is like this evangelical bro I went to college with, and he's still a great friend of mine. And and at first he was at, at first he was really confused and really struggled to understand it. But I think as he just watched what I was doing and watched how watched my blog and my interactions online and so on, he finally came to me one day and was like, so, Stephen, your Satan isn't the Christian Satan that is the, the, the fulfillment of all evil. It's a different character. And I'm like, yes, it finds inspiration there, but... Symbols are subjective. This is a different symbol. And he was like, oh, well, I think that's great. <laughs> and, and he was able to be more comfortable with it. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, some small event or some, you know, new bit of information can come by in which they can relate it to something they didn't quite grasp. I'm, I'm also so glad. Oh, are you still there? You just froze up. Yeah, I'm here. Okay, great. I'm I'm so glad that you also bring up the word transcendence. You know, you said a little bit ago, maybe someone has a transcendent experience that helps them understand this. This has been the hardest thing for me to communicate about my Satanism, which is I feel like my Satanism came out of a transcendent experience. But it was a yeah, non. I, I don't have a problem. With, right, right. I don't have a problem with that terminology because to me, the the claim that it's transcendent just means that it's it's more than something you can describe as the sum of its parts. Exactly. You know, it's this kind of emergent characteristic that defies characterization by any of its any of its component elements. Right. So yes. it's something that uh, that is its own thing to the point that it's inextricable from all the rest of the feelings and emotions that are tied to it. And that's why Satan is not an arbitrary choice. It's inextricably tied to all of this for us. And, you know, we're not at liberty to just say, all right, we're going with the, the less antagonistic hero from Greek lore or something like that, which so many people suggest to us in which to us is just kind of, an absurd recommendation and it's just it's, yes. it's 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 really interesting to see how many people think that that's exactly what we could do if we weren't being edgy little pricks exactly i mean there have been people on my blog who've commented on my blog saying well why don't you um get a religion based on lord of the rings then if it's just an arbitrary fiction you know if if you're just basing your religion on some mythology of your own choosing that you like, then why not something a bit more palatable? Why not deliberately choose something like Lord of the Rings? Or why not 
Buddhism or, you know, why not some non-theistic paganism or something like Buddhism? And and I always feel like those people are going about it much more rationally than I am because my my Satanism is fundamentally not rational. It is rooted in rationality. It it uh, lifts up rationality, but my my Satanism is rooted in all love affair. It is all this um, kind of romance with the the symbol of Satan that has just captured my heart. Um, if I were going about, you know, I've, I keep telling people, if I were to go about this rationally, I would be a boring, milk toast Unitarian Universalist. Like, if I wanted to be the most palatable person I could possibly be, I would just be an Episcopalian. <laughs> right. You know? Right. Um, and so this this idea that I am, I don't know, deliberately choosing to be one in one of the most marginalized and misunderstood religions in the world, or at least in the Western world, is, uh, is stupid. I would not willingly bring that onto myself unless I had a transcendent religious experience that transformed me, you know? Right, yeah. And that's one of those things, though, because of that, that transcendent nature of it, because it's something that's more than the sum of its parts, because it's something that's really uh, indescribable in that way. It's it's also the most difficult question for us to answer, even you know as, as absurd as the question is. And for how many times I've been asked in all these years, I still don't feel like I have that kind of elevator pitch answer where I have a concise, you know, a couple sentence long kind of explanation that can satisfy that inquiry because it's just it's just not there there's just too much to it i guess yeah same you know when when people ask me so (laughs) a question i get a lot lately is so how did you go from christian missionary to satanist and I'm like, well, I'm, I've written a lot about this. I have a podcast. I would be happy to refer it to you. Oh, big rumble in the background. Um, yeah, motorcycle. But yeah, no, I completely, I'm completely there with you. It's like I, every time that question comes, I feel kind of tongue-tied. And the fact that it happens to you as well is kind of reassuring, honestly. <laughs> it's, well, that's it's why re- I write these essays, too, because yeah. it's uh, some of these questions seem so off base to us, uh, but they come all the time that I, I feel badly for people who are just just coming into this, uh, just starting to uh, mingle with our community uh, online and social media, getting these questions, and then being caught off guard and thinking, well, I, I don't know. What about Islam? Why? I don't know. I didn't, I didn't think of Islam, you know, what, exactly. What, what's my, right. What's my answer to this? And <laughs> I, I, uh, I think I've, I've provided some, uh, ready-made links that people can just, <laughs> I agree. Can just catch. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I think that you're completely right. Also that the questions are that the majority of them are not trolling. Like, I think the, I think the guy in my, on my Twitter right now who is asking some questions like, uh, one was, um, 
do you recommend that everyone rub their scrotum on the monuments of of dead matriarchs referring to <laughs> referring to the pink mass of course okay clearly clearly cheeky and a bit trolly um but but funny too but i th- i think you're I, I right. did a, i did a lecture for a law class at uh boston university uh-huh one time so i kept it very academic you know, really talking about the legal structures or, or the legal struggles of the Satanic Temple and uh, our approach and, you know, I guess our interpretation of the First Amendment, which I see as, you know, clearly the interpretation of the First Amendment that is most reasonable, uh, <laughs> you know, just kind of, kind of the history and philosophy of our legal struggles. This whole class sitting there listening politely, I had my PowerPoints up and video showed and everything else and then it got to Q&A and the first question some fucking guy raised his hands he's like did you really put your balls on the grave of the <laughs> founder of the Westboro Baptist Church church's mother and I was thinking god damn it you little prick but and the answer is yes yes, yes I did <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> so um but yeah that so Yes, I think that most of these questions are 100% sincere. And, you know, like, why why Satan? Why not Islam? So on and so forth. It, they're so... They, they happen so often that I really want to put together, like, a little mock tract, satanic tract, that, you know, because I get these all the time at the grocery store, because clearly I just scream reprobate, and that I need to be saved. And so I, and, and also we're at the cashier. So we're like held hostage to these people, to these customers who want to evangelize us. And they give us these tracks all the time. It's like the biggest question, oh, like the biggest questions in your life, uh, you know, some vague title, and then you open it up and it's all about Jesus. So I really want to do some like, you know, silly tract that has all of these basic questions. Why not Islam? Why Satan? Are you just a troll for when people ask me this? I think that would be a great project. Right. Yeah. Well, I, you know, one of the more perplexing questions to me, well, was it wasn't really a question, but it was a criticism. I, I wrote an article earlier, you know, a, a couple of years ago, I think to answer this one, it's one of those ready on hand links that I can just dump to people now. But I kept seeing this bizarre criticism uh, that was accusing us of not understanding our own history or the history of religion or whatever else, because we're utilizing sometimes an inverted cross in the real meaning of the inverted cross, according to these people was, uh, was Catholic in origin. It was, uh, Saint, Saint, Saint Saint Peter's cross, yeah, yeah. Saint Peter's cross. He he believed he wasn't uh, uh, worthy of being uh, executed in the same manner as Christ, so he uh, insisted that his cross be inverted. Is is the story? And there was some segment of the Catholic population that, at least for a time, you know, proudly displayed the inverted cross as something you know uh, worthy of praise, and. That is that one was just really bizarre to me because I feel like the inverted cross 
and the context of a Satanist also has a very obvious meaning, but the insistence that there is an original and true meaning to any symbol yes. just kind of really is is a strange and, to me, uh, kind of crippling mindset to have. And I, I think mm. it's a much bigger thing. I think a lot of misunderstandings people have probably stem from that kind of uh, lack of semantic logic to the point that I'm they feel so that there's an essential meaning up. to symbols. Yes. And, I, yeah, I, I really think that uh, uh, that's something worth confronting to the point that I've always kind of felt that there should be semantic logic courses in mm. at, at the elementary school level, you know, that, that let, you know, children know that there is not an essential meaning to symbols. There is not uh, a tangible harm being done, uh, you know, to a flag being burned. You know, these, these can be very disrespectful things. It depends. You know, a lot of things have to be taken in, in context with its intention and everything else. Yeah. And I think, you know, some of the failure we have to meet each other on any middle ground comes from that philosophy of essentialism. I am so glad you bring that up because what I come across again and again is almost like this Jordan Peterson-esque idea. Um, I don't know how familiar, how familiar you are with Jordan Peterson, but I, I did several episodes about him, and I read his entire goddamn book, and it was one of the most miserable experiences of my life. And I believe you. I never, I never bought, I, you know, I always kind of discarded him. He's weird. He's really weird. Yeah, no, I got that impression in, uh, in uh, a friend of mine, a professor in a, at a school in Pennsylvania had a kind of uh, high-profile vitriolic dispute with him, but I can't say hmm. that I've I've read directly from the source. You know, I, I feel sure. like I I know a lot about uh, what I probably don't like about Jordan Peterson, but I can't speak with authority because I haven't read the source material. Which oddly, uh, I think. Uh, is the preferred route of a lot of people today on uh, on dismantling their enemies is never reading their material to begin with because then you're complicit with them somehow. You yes, know? It, not, it's this. You're not yeah, supposed it, to listen to your opposition or actually know what they're saying. It's a theory uh, of contagion. Purity by not engaging with it, but uh, but fighting against it uh, anyway. Yeah, it, it's this bizarre theory of contagion that right because I follow you know crazy alt-right loons on Twitter that I must somehow be contaminated by their ideas as if it's some kind of pathogen. But yes, all that aside, Jordan Peterson has this idea of like this substrate, this, this metaphysical symbolic substrate to the universe and that it's absolute and that he, and that these symbols all, you know he he was heavily influenced by jung and so on and kind of the the collective subconscious and archetypes and all that kind of stuff and and i think a lot of people are operating from this position of just assuming that symbols have an absolute value that and, and that it it never shifts with time or place or that the same thing can't mean 
or that a symbol can't mean multiple things. And so, you know, I, I've had this conversation several times about the Black Mass, where someone someone will approach me and and say, so what about the blasphemies that you see during a Black Mass? Actually, a, a recent conversation I had was about the robot Jesus that our friend... Um, Oh, Harry, Harry yeah. hoof and Yes, he's yeah. a patron. Hello, Harry. We love you. Um, but the very blasphemous and hilarious robot Jesus that he invented, where when the robot Jesus is right side up, he speaks scripture. When it's upside down, he spews blasphemies. And someone on Twitter was actually kind of upset about that. And my response was, well, it, it depends on which Jesus we have in mind if if we're talking about the Jesus in whose name children are raped and nations and people are destroyed and women are degraded then that Jesus needs to be blasphemed that Jesus ha- should be blasphemed but if we're talking about the Jesus of Martin Luther King Jr if we're talking about the Jesus of Dorothy Day or any of or, or Reverend Barber here in North Carolina, who's who's head of the moral majority movement um, and, and uh, poor people's movement. If we're talking about that Jesus, then I honor that Jesus. That symbol is beautiful. It depends. It depends on what Jesus we are talking about. Yeah. I, I, uh, sorry, I'm preaching you know, to the choir on this, no, aren't I? Yeah, no, it's exactly. <laughs> but it, it, it's such an important fundamental topic, I think, in this that is insistence that symbols can only mean one thing and that there's this meaning that is derived from its point of origin is really just bizarre, but I think it's ubiquitous. And I think that's when we run into the type of opposition for whom it does not matter who we are, what we do, what we believe. <laughs> Bless you. No editing. No editing. <laughs> it, it does. None of those factors matter so much as their insistence that Satan is at least symbolic of the ultimate evil and that regardless of what we do and what we say, we could only be working towards some kind of counterproductive and sinister ends. And there might be people who think that there's not a whole lot of harm to that belief because it just puts an absolute value on evil and we all have a general agreement that cruelty, destruction, things like that are are evil and we should avoid it. doesn't matter if people anthropomorphize it or if people insist that it belongs in one symbolic structure rather than the other, but it does have a counterproductive effect because it makes the reverse also true for them. It makes their behavior beyond, uh, beyond question, uh, be, beyond criticism. Uh, they've always been right and they always will be. And it doesn't matter how depraved their activities are and giving people that kind of moral self-licensing leads to where we see uh, certain organized religions going now where they are just covering up for uh, what we all know, you know, that they're raping children, doing all kinds of 
disgusting things. The, uh, the evangelical theocratic coup in the United States uh, being enacted with a particular eye towards limiting reproductive rights and uh, legislating uh, protected discrimination, things that uh, by no rational person's mes measure could be considered moral, but they're symbolically moral to the people who insist that good and evil are neatly divided between these two sets of iconography. And unless they can begin to see symbols in a more nuanced fashion than this, they're going to be malleable towards really destructive, immoral messages that they'll embrace as a moral imperative. You know, you have this this line that you said somewhere, it might have been in an article or in an interview, but you said something along the lines of evil done in the name of Jesus is still evil and good done in the name of Satan is still good. But basically what I'm hearing you say is that as long as we have this absolute vision of symbolism, that religious symbolism is just immutable, that Satan will always be evil and Jesus will always be good, that 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 view of symbolism is actually blinding society, relig you know, religious people and whatnot to the evil that is actually being done in the name of Jesus and so on. It, it's like it disables so it, it disables us. It disables the communities from being able to respond to evil appropriately. Right, right. People don't don't question which side they're on, mm. so long as the the right symbols and right uh, right key phrases are thrown out. And that's why, you know, this kind of imbalance in the information ecosystem now that most news is uh, consumed through social media now has become so, so dangerous and vulnerable to propaganda. Uh, so long as you properly utilize terms like patriotism, or, you know, utilize the Christian symbol symbology, uh, you can begin to weasel in messages that may have previously been entirely contrary to what people thought of as being aligned with their vision of what was morally correct attached to those symbols, you know, and there again, you're like the, the frog in the slowly boiling water. Like mm. these things kind of encroach themselves in without realization, but you have people who are so tribally attached to, you know, a set of symbols or whatever that, uh, they don't realize they've taken on the most depraved points of view mm. in the name of this greater imaginary good. You know, I'm really glad that you bring that up, um, the social media aspect in particular, in part because I am reading a book that you might find very interesting called uh, 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social um, Your Social Media Accounts Right oh, Now. Oh, yeah, yeah, Lanier, yeah. Yeah, he, Jaron Lanier. He worked for, uh, for Microsoft. He might still work for Microsoft, he actually. Might, he might still, but he is the, I mean, he is one of the fathers of virtual reality and augmented reality. He was like the head scientist who on the team who built Internet 2.0, which was this the scaling up of the Internet from the university systems to the public. So the man knows his stuff. He's been around for a while. Um, right. He's been an early critic of the social media environment that we're in now. And yes. uh, the reasons for deleting your social media profile, I, I do believe, are a good one. And uh, I do think that... 
the problems of this imbalance of the information ecosystem is one of the most pressing problems today. I would have put it as uh, 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 a high priority, um, as probably as one of the highest priorities if it weren't for the, uh, the pandemic right now. This would be something that definitely needed to be approached and conquered. Um, the problem of Facebook, I don't think is is widely known as it should be, and it goes well beyond. I agree. The kind of uh, dysfunctional communication environment that it puts people in when they go into their polarized shells feeling that uh, they're getting the same information as, as everybody else when in fact you know uh, most people consume their news now through Facebook and don't realize just how refined the targeting is of the messages that they receive and mm. it's to the point that you know, they, they're still doing retrospective analyses of the 2016 election to figure out how predictions were so radically wrong. You know, Hillary Clinton was supposed to win by a landslide. Trump was this uh, this laughable clown who didn't have a chance and, you know, making these preposterous statements. People turned out to vote for him and they, they're finding new things all, all the time. And the disturbing part is, is they might never know the extent of the advertising and misinformation that was directly targeted to people who were highly persuadable to it mm. through these kind of social media channels. And, you know, I've always been an advocate for neutrality and free speech uh, with that kind of old school idea, that pre-social media idea that, you know, you can throw bad ideas out into the open forum and this just lends itself to correction by people who are going to stick to the facts and kind of dissect bad information in real time and have that kind of discussion. I think what we're seeing now and the real problem that's evolving from it is that what appears to be an open forum isn't. Yes. And I was seeing recently that uh, it was discovered that a very targeted population on Facebook had received this kind of propaganda that Trump had made some direct commentary about taking on the problem of chemtrails, that he had made some kind of campaign promise that he was going to put an end to this practice of commercial airliners spewing out these toxins into the air to make the, the population docile or otherwise contaminate them or whatever the chemtrail theory is. The idea was that Trump was going to confront it directly. Trump, even as stupid as his statements are, never said anything about chemtrails, but people who were inclined to believe in chemtrails got this directly targeted message saying that Trump was going to do something about it. Now, in, in pri prior times, you know, a message like that would have had to be put out at large and would have been dissected by you know, a larger segment of the population that would have pointed out exactly how much bullshit that was but when it's directly targeted to people in this way it's not open to that kind of observation and correction and debate we're not living in that same kind of environment anymore and i think it's kind of problematic that the decision that a lot of people have come to who are concerned about this is that we should hand even more power over to the social media mega giants like facebook and give them this kind of carte blanche to curate people's feeds, uh, censor more material, 
uh, further curate the news. I really think the problem is in the business model of Facebook itself, which should be destroyed in Facebook. And that, that business model is one in which our privacy is corrupted by its kind of profiles it builds of all the people using it uh, and allowing those kinds of profiles to be available to marketers who want to hone these directed messages at us that they know we're most malleable to. I think that business model needs to be destroyed. I think it is an existential threat to humanity. Like, I, I know that that sounds really dramatic, but I really, really think that the current model of social media is an existential threat to the planet because of how it exacerbates the worst parts of our human nature. And, but also, you know, what you were just saying about, you know, free speech and the open and, and, and the public square and all of that. So Jaron Lanier has this quote and, and this is, so this is hitting on a passion of mine. I am fascinated by tech and social media and how it influences us. So we're getting deep into something that I'm fascinated by. And here's what Jaron says. He says, not only is your worldview distorted, but you have less awareness of other people's worldviews. You are banished from the experiences of the other groups being manipulated separately. Their experiences are as opaque to you as the algorithms that are driving your experiences. This is an epical development. The version of the world you are seeing is invisible to the people who misunderstand you and vice versa. And what this means is, you know, empathy, empathy and understanding, as he argues, are all based on context. So propaganda is never good. Propaganda is is awful. But Fox News, at least everyone can tune in and watch it and then discuss it. Everyone can turn on Fox News and see what the crazy right-wing nut is, is watching, and then we can dis discuss whether it is true or not. We cannot do that with someone else's feed. That's invisible to us. Therefore, we have the inability to cultivate empathy and understanding and to uh, really debate and discuss what it is that they even believe because we right, can't right. know. Fox News is, is dangerous. It's, and evil, uh, yes. It's corrupted, and it's, it's you know, uh, the poll after poll has shown how much less informed right. This is This is not, far be it from me to defend, Fo like, this oh, is no, not a, a defense of Fox at all, right? Well said, though, right? Uh, Fox News now has to, is hired a team of lawyers because they're anticipating blowback from their misinformation about the coronavirus. People are going to die. Because right. everyone because can, they, can they watch can it. be held accountable, at least, for yes. things like that. And uh, some of their talking heads have been fired for uh, the ridiculous things they've said in the course of this coronavirus. But uh, it's too late. You know, too, uh, they already put out that initial message. And now there's that kind of untrackable, unaccountable... Uh, social media push where, you know, you really have people who truly believe now that the coronavirus is a hoax. and uh, Or it's that, caused by 5G networks as a family member 
of mine believes. Right, right. <laughs> and, and you just have to see how little you come in contact with that reality in your own social media to see just how separated we are and how we're not talking about the same information when we speak at all. Like usually, you know, if we're giving commentary that's uh, critical of this type of thing, you know, we, we, we're doing it because we're, we're commenting on articles that discuss it in more neutral press. You know, for the most part, we're not, none of us are enveloping ourselves in these worlds where QAnon claims are, are being taken seriously or, you know, claims that coronavirus is a hoax are being taken seriously or other kind of Trump-centric kind of uh, uh, media bubbles that people are put it or algorithm bubbles, as they call them now. You know, people's interests are uh, are kind of parsed by, uh, you know, not manually, of course, but by algorithms by Google, by Facebook, they, they know what you believe. They know what you want to hear. They know what news will speak to you. And that's what you're going to see unless you actively make the efforts to go out and find what the other side is talking about, what they're, what they're participating in, what, what kind of news sources they're looking at. You're not going to see it at all. And that's what I mean when I say that kind of open forum really isn't there anymore. Yes, 100%. I think I think podcasts are one of the few uh, last places on the internet where there is still some kind of open forum. Uh, you know, listeners are forced to just sit down and listen. <laughs> you know, if they want to listen to a podcast, they can't they can't find the bits that cater to their opinions. They have to listen th through the whole thing. The podcast industry is still fairly open. Um, but I feel like podcasts are, are one of the last really. I, I feel like this business model of monetizing your data for greater clicks and then selling your data to advertisers who want to manipulate you for whatever reason, for political gain, to make you, you know, there are, there are advertisers who want to make you more sad and depressed. Therefore, you buy their product. Uh, they can individually target you, and you don't even realize that you're being targeted. You don't even realize, you don't even realize that you're being manipulated because it's done so subtly in our feeds. And uh, I think that that business model is just destroying the internet. It's disgusting. Well, it's it really frightens me. Environment too, and and I have never seen uh, a more irresponsible company than Facebook. What, whatever it is, Facebook is mm. not going to take responsibility for it. When uh, you know, it's one thing when there's been this whole history of me reporting death threats I get to Facebook and then finding them not to be against their terms of service. It's a whole nother state of affairs now that we're big enough that all these imposter accounts pop up and people try to uh, sell things in our name. The, or the Illuminati, the Illuminati accounts. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, and of course, Instagram is owned by Facebook and, and a new Instagram account. My name will pop up on a, on a weekly basis and I have to go through the effort to get those removed every yeah. single time. And then, you know, usually suffer that for for weeks because 
they ha won't put anything in place. Uh, there's like not a no call list that I can put myself on and say, look, I don't ever want an Instagram account. Like don't, don't post an Instagram account in my name. Uh, recently, uh, Facebook refused to take action even on a copyright claim we had where a, a page was using, you know, was trying to uh, advance itself as being, uh, you know, as being there in our name. Um, you know, have to take legal action against that. But, uh, you know, Facebook hasn't, wouldn't even obligate itself to uh, setting any truth standards for political advertising. And advertising has always been taken differently than uh, general free speech claims. You know, there's always been uh, truth and product advertising. There's always been restrictions on advertising that went beyond you know, political criticism or what we usually put under the rubric of free speech. Facebook won't do anything that's going to take any more time and effort on Facebook's part, you know, deferring that to the people who are affected by it. I mean, I, so much of my time has been wasted pursuing claims against, you know, Facebook-owned social media platforms uh, to no gain of, of my own, really, you know, to, to, to keep Absolutely. those things under, under wraps. But, you know, beside the kind of personal harm done, just the general harm to the political climate by allowing, you know, just misinformation and propaganda to be directly targeted to people in ways that are opaque to everybody else. You know, and, and thus not vulnerable Including to the mass to Facebook. criticism we would usually see. And, uh, you know, that's that's done a lot to kind of change the entire political climate worldwide. You know, this isn't just a U.S. thing. You know, autocratic governments have been using Facebook to their uh, to, to their ends. Uh, you know, media al analysts have lamented that uh, the kind of social media information environment is more amenable to autocracy. You know, the kind of clickbait statements of patriotism and, and nationalism uh, really are are much more easily disseminated in, uh, in soundbite clickbait fashion than more nuanced approaches to anything. And it's, uh, it's really wreaked havoc worldwide, globally, in ways I think people don't really appreciate yet. And I honestly do feel that Facebook needs to be destroyed. I 100% agree, and it really frightens me with issues like COVID-19 or climate change or, um, you know, any large um, global issue that threatens humanity. <laughs> I mean, I don't think humanity would go extinct, but the well-being, if, you know, like if we don't do anything about climate change, then the the well-being of humanity would be greatly diminished uh, compared to where we are now. And the fact that social media encourages science, scientific disinformation and delusion and illiteracy um, is just so incredibly frightening to me. What, it, what also is frightening to me is 
the way it makes in, in the same way it makes us unable to empathize with others and i don't mean empathy in a you know warm <laughs> i i mean empathize as understanding where they're coming from even if it's from a very dark place even if it's from a place that is morally objectionable we can still you know we can it if you know some grandpa is plugged into Fox News all day long and is just kind of getting this constant brain melting stream of propaganda, then we can and we know that, then we can understand why grandpa's so crazy. Um, because he's, it's it's corrupting people. Uh, he, I yes. think people always feel that beliefs are a matter of moral standing. And I think we we kind of touched on this last time we were speaking. Sometimes deplorable ideas are just based on a misunderstanding of the facts. Mm. And I think last time, uh, it was either with you or another interviewer, but I think it was with you. I was talking about uh, whether or not you believe that the world is becoming overpopulated. Um, does, that, does that sound familiar? I don't think that if, was me. Or maybe it was. I don't remember. I, I, I do a lot of interviews. But I was saying, sure. you know, like, uh, it's similar to, it, it's a topic I brought up when I was talking about the differences between the Satanic Temple and the Church of Satan. Mm. And people dismiss sometimes those kind of libertarian, social Darwinist I ideas that are espoused by LeVay and the Church of Satan as just coming from a mindset of kind of uh, uh, entitled uh, uh, kind of just wickedness, right? Uh, I, don't, I don't know, uh, just kind of like a, a morally inferior place. And in reality, some people can, can be corrected on the facts to come to different conclusions. Uh, and like with the question of, of overpopulation, you know, there, there are people who believe still that the world is quickly becoming overpopulated and mm -hmm. that resources are going to diminish to the point that we're going to need to make drastic calls on, on reproductive rights, right? Like the population can't be sustained. We'll, we'll all die if we if we still experience this exponential growth in population. So we need to consider ways in which to limit population growth, whether it's uh, limiting people to a certain number of children, whether it's making qualitative distinctions against people. And this brings you down to all kinds of terrible questions. But if you really believe that we're going to be overpopulated and soon, and that now is the time we need to have those discussions, Otherwise, it's too late and all of humanity will die. Well, you're just being irresponsible if you don't confront that question. The fact of the matter is, is that we're not going to become overpopulated. Uh, you know, or, or at least, you know, the best available evidence shows, projections show, the birth rates are going down and that they're going to keep going down. And that this is kind of a natural function and that, uh, you know, the birth rate will, will will steadily decline and that it's going to be more of an economic problem that we don't have this kind of exponential population growth anymore rather than a kind of question of resources based upon this uh, you know abundance of population so understanding that people can then realize we don't have to confront those kinds of we don't have to 
you know, talk about limiting people's reproductive rights. We don't have to talk about uh, qualitative distinctions and whether they're they're accurate or not on people, you know, that kind of thing. And I do think that when it comes to debunked ideas of libertarian economics, you know, that uh, deregulation alone defines freedom or these kinds of uh, uh other kind of debunked notions of social Darwinism and things like that. I think there is a population of people who subscribe to these things who can be corrected. I agree. And I think it's just wrong to try to put people into these camps where you're uh, simply putting these moral evaluations on them uh, before you've made any effort to determine whether they're simply wrong. And Mm. we've all been wrong on, on facts before. And have been corrected in the past. And I think at least, you know, if people are honest about it, they can fall back on that to uh, hopefully encourage them to bring more nuance into the, dis- into the discussion or kind of take the time to try to correct people or at least put information out there that, again, getting back to that idea of planting the seed where, you know, even if people's knee-jerk reaction at one moment in time might be to double down on where they stand or to hate you for trying to correct them. Maybe it'll stick with them later on and something else will put it in a new context for them and they will come back to that. And, you know, maybe not immediately, but slowly and cumulatively Hmm. come to a better place. I don't know if you've noticed this, but so I am very much on the left. And so I, I, you know, interview a bunch of socialists and, and like I just had, a socialist economist on to actually talk about Facebook and um, and how to improve their system uh, as well as Google and Apple and so on. Um, but I've been really, really disturbed by this trend that I see of just failing to believe that any conversion is possible, that that people's minds can change at all. And it really disturbs me because I believe firmly that the future of the world is predicated on conversion. It is predicated on people realizing they were wrong about something and doing better. And it, it, so like what you're talking about, just this, this moral dismissal of people who, who are wrong, um, it actually really alarms me because I've been I have come under lots of criticism in the past for daring to have conversations with say conservative Christians for for just not for not completely you know writing them off and condemning them and almost as if I'm somehow contracting their disease or that it's yeah, a few me futile as if, you know, we were talking earlier about these Christian movies. Yes. And I was talking about the humor of Second Glance. Uh, to me, it's that's similar to somebody seeing our playlist of movies and saying, well, see that? They endorse <laughs> movies like Second Glance. <laughs> clearly, cl- clearly, they're evangelical Christians who are pulling some bullshit on the rest of us. It's, it's just as ridiculous as that, you know? It is. To me, uh, to have conversations with the opposition that's what you do 
That's what well, you should do. Exactly. Like, people should be exposed to what they think they're opposed to. Otherwise, how can they even be sure they're opposed to it at all? I really can't trust somebody's opinion on something, uh, on some measure of the validity of the other side's argument when they refuse to engage with the other side's arguments, right? Yes. And, but also, I, I just want to look at like my fellow progressives and be like, well, what is your goal? Is your goal to win? If your goal is to win, then you need to convince people. And I, th- I had this whole inner dialogue with myself, like when, I mean, this was, this is ancient history now, um, back before Bernie dropped out and, and Joe Rogan endorsed Bernie. And like the Democratic establishment lost their goddamn minds. And it's like, yes, Joe Rogan, he's platformed some disgusting people. I, I don't think he has had many good takes on trans people. I, you know, like he's a mixed bag for me. But the fact that he came out and said, I would vote for Bernie because I think his policies are better. Why, why would you be so upset about that? Isn't our goal to win? I mean, they're upset about it because they didn't want Bernie to win. But, but they're also, you know, more social, socialist commie types who were really, really upset about that. Like, we can't... We, we can't dismiss someone because they've said a few naughty or awful things in the past. People grow, people mature. And I'm like, is your goal to win or is your goal to be on this high horse and establish your dominance over others? Right. You know? well, when people are willing to learn and people are willing to correct themselves, it's not in our best interest to insist that they can never be reformed and to keep them on the other side. Uh, then you're just cultivating exactly. enemies and you're, you're certainly not going to win. You're not going to win hearts and minds. You're, you're not going to, uh, you're not going to get anywhere with that. And at one point uh, during my stint with the satanic temple here, I got a message from a, uh, a follower who said that uh, confessing to me that she used to be, some kind of neo-Nazi in her teen years or something like that. And uh, she felt she needed to confess this to me and, and, you know, felt all this terrible remorse for, you know, all, you know, her past and her beliefs and all that kind of thing and wanted to know if she should just never have anything to do with TST again in this kind of agonizing fit of guilt she was having. And, uh, you know, I posted my reply to her publicly or not publicly, but it was on my, my Patreon, um, for subscribers. And, uh, you know, I was saying that, of course, you know, the satanic temple is no place for, for Nazis, but I also made clear that I thought it was a great place for <laughs> the for, reform for former Nazis, Nazi exactly. Men's and looking to do good in the world. And I think that's what you need to do there needs to be a place for somebody who are for people who are going to be amenable to reform people are going to realize they were wrong and people who want to do better and want to make a positive impact upon the world if you just cast them out you're just insisting that they then only have one community it's the one that they came from and it's the one we're sending them back to 
And yeah. it's, uh, you know, and, it, and as I said, you're kind of cultivating an enemy and you're never going to get anywhere. Well, yes. And, you know, I, I have been really alarmed by some of the responses I've seen on social media towards the protesters against lockdown. And I'm on the one hand, I'm like, yes, this is stupid. What they're doing is wrong. It's stupid. It this is really awful. Let's not do this. This <laughs> this is alarming. All of that. All of the above. But then I'm seeing I'm seeing insults be uh, I'm I'm seeing people insult how they talk. I'm seeing insults of how they dress, how they look. How and I'm and I and I'm not one to pull punches towards people I think are wrong. You know, I will call people disgusting and degenerate and, and so on all day long. But when it but I'm also really alarmed by by this inability of certain people who are presumably on the left to realize that we need a wide and populist left that appeals to all different types of people that appeals to to rednecks to uh you know the people who who live in the Texas chainsaw houses here in my small town who who you know that's just full of cows and meth i want them i want those people to be pink commie leftists just butt fucking each other and and accepting their trans identities and whatnot like i i want a wa a broad populist left, regardless of what socioeconomic status they are, or what their background is, or if they were once neo Nazis, or what have you. I I want a broad left, and what I see so often, and I'm seeing this in the response to the protests, um, this snobbishness versus a desire for a broad coalition. And this desire to bring to bring people on board. <laughs> I don't know if that makes much sense, but it's it's annoying me. Yeah. It, what is weird, though, is uh, is there's some things that people don't allow reform for and other things that just nobody really questions either. I think uh, people changing politics is far more suspect of people than people changing religion which is so I fucking weird yes yeah it's it really weird to me because i don't think of anybody you know uh i i don't think anybody would say to me like you shouldn't talk to to steven here he's he's a you know he claims to be this ex-christian but, but what do you know <laughs> you know maybe maybe he's still doing the christian thing i'm a covert but, christian you, know, you you have people like, I don't know if somebody came from like the young Republicans or something and was talking to me and, and just embraced a whole different set of politics. Now, I think I would get a lot of the kind of thing, you know, a lot of those messages where people would say, like, well, what are you doing? What are you doing with this guy? You know, this is there's something more sinister going on here. Well, and, you know, let me know if this is too delicate a subject. I It probably isn't. But let me know if it is. I've seen these things kind of leveled at you um, because you illustrated a, a, a copy, an edition of Might is Right. And, right. and then you had kind of this years ago, kind of a, a cringy 
uh, conversation with Shane Bugby. And, right, yeah, yeah. And it's like, and, and you know, I heard, I, I've seen so many people on the far left um, use those points to say that you are some kind of crypto fascist, that you're some, right. which is so backwards and delusional to me because I look at my own life and first of all, I don't know what you used to believe and I don't really care. Like it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me, but I look at my own life and realize I have believed personally some really, really awful, disgusting things that I now renounce that I, and if, if people were to just judge me based on the things that I said 10 years ago when I was a douchebag libertarian conservative, um, <laughs> they would have a very wrong picture of me. Well, it, it's kind of easy to go back through that history and see what I what I did believe and how it's also not what's presented by those who try to frame me as having, you know, been a fascist or and if you were a fascist or or that I'm some crypto fascist now or whatever. But right. I think the best kind of demonstration of what I felt was the best available evidence and what I believed that in those times was my analysis of LeVay and Satanism in my article I wrote about the difference between, you know, the Satanic Temple and the Church of Satan. And I was willing to embrace at, at the time, you know, 20 years ago, uh, these notions that, you know, our, our social existence was this kind of survival of the fittest and this deracialized uh, social Darwinism, you know, the, that kind of meritocratic ideal. And also, you know, that notion, of course, that we're going to be overpopulated and these other kind of problems that really don't have a basis in, in, you know, the actual science that you have today. So I think it was a matter of being corrected on facts and following the best available evidence towards the kind of uh, moral conclusions that they mm. come to. And it kind of helped define the satanic reformation of the satanic temple as distinct from the church of Satan. So it was kind of that background that brought relevance to the satanic temple and modern Satanism. It made the, uh, it, it, it made the satanic temple necessary. Right. And I think that kind of history, that kind of coming from that Levian context to where we're at now, I always felt was explicitly and openly part of the understood history of the Satanic Temple. So I'm kind of confused sometimes when people say, well, what is this? How could this possibly be? You know, and I'm even more mm. confused when the Church of Satan themselves try to use that <laughs> to disparage me because anything disparaging works, I guess, even though it speaks more poorly to them. Trying to, trying to use the fact that you translated or, or not translated, that you illustrated that book, for example. Right, right. Right. But the uh, the thing with with LeVay's use of might is right and might is right is this kind of, you know, bombastic, horrible, you know, uh, has these it was written in it was published in like 1896. So it has these kind of like racist statements in it, anti-Semitic and that kind of thing. But the power of it was supposed to be that LeVay had taken the good from the bad. He had left all that stuff behind and taken out these passages that were just more about 
personal empowerment and individual rights, yeah. you know, deracialized uh, uh, might is right into the satanic Bible and thereby constructed something powerful, meaningful, and affirmative from this kind of ugly history that, uh, you know, that nobody was, you know, that, that shouldn't be ignored just the same. Um, yeah, that kind of thinking doesn't fly very well. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really the theory of contagion. When you get, right, right. Yeah. when you get contaminated, you can't get uncontaminated. It's like you're a leper now. You have to go out to the colony separated from us. And if you touch us, then suddenly we'll be defiled in some way. It's really gross. It's just a, it's just a gross dehumanizing worldview. And I say that because I have, I am where I am right now because people who cared about me took the time to talk to me and they took the time to listen to me, understand where I was coming from. And through that long process, I moved away from my far right ideology. And, and also because of people like them, I eventually came to accept myself as gay. I just all of this stuff. And, and so whenever people are like, Stephen, you're wasting your time. I, it's so um, it's almost insulting to me because I am where I am right now because someone took the time to to talk to me and have those long suffering conversations. Um, it, well, to yeah. be fair, though, to the uh, to some of the knee jerk purity test left, um, the political environment, you know, even not too terribly long ago in our lifetimes was such that, you know, if somebody said Nazi to me, that was 1930s specific. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, we didn't have as powerful a, a far right movement uh, than as we do now. And the rights revolution seemed like it was a kind of linear progress in the right direction and that wasn't being rolled back. And, you know, if you talked about neo-Nazis, that for the most part was just like a club scene, you know, of degenerates who shave their heads and look for, for fights and stuff like that. And it, there wasn't really that kind of fear that, uh, that far-right politics were, were ever going to make any, any advances or headway. So to a certain degree, I can understand the, the, the reticence to acknowledge or engage in debate, uh, I still think it's it's wrong to you know shut out uh, shut out dialogue entirely because you're not going to you're not going to change any anybody's mind if you do you know you, you have to yeah. let your your position be known but I you know I will acknowledge those changes to the environment that make it uh, uh, so much more shocking I think now to people that artists you know like just even back in the '90s would like utilize f fascist imagery and shit like that. Uh, oh yeah. Not, Marilyn Manson did all the time. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and you don't, and at the time I don't think anybody was thinking like, Oh, that's because they endorse this, you know, that kind of thing. It was more like uh, using that kind of, that kind of as artistic raw material to shake people up. And, you know, it was often that, uh, those artistic expressions would incorporate the things from which people were actually decrying, you know, 
And I yeah. often bring up that, uh, uh, you know, the band Skinny Puppy, uh, which William Morrison, William Morrison. I have... was, was part of, uh, they used to take to the stage and they were very anti-animal testing, very animal rights, anti-vivisection. And as part of that, on stage, they would uh, do this mock dissection of a dog, you know. And uh, for the most part, nobody thought then that they were advocating for vivisection, you know. Right. However, that seems to be more the mindset now, that any display of these types of things is an endorsement of it. And that's kind of a, that's a real kind of... Uh, distinct change in artistic culture that I think has been little understood and has led to a lot of kind of pillaring of, uh, of, uh, past, uh, past artists. I completely agree. It is. I do I, wonder how Marilyn Manson has been Teflon in that regard though. Well, um, I mean, Marilyn Manson is still producing music and it's still, I mean, I, he had a slump. He had a slump through like the late, 2000s early 2010s but his last two albums have actually been really good and he's doing great and i don't know how he has managed to avoid <laughs> i have no idea how he's managed to to avoid all of um the accusations of being a a neo-nazi and all of that maybe maybe he is being accused of that and i'm just not seeing it but i'm really not sure i do have to add a really important caveat to listeners who who might feel like they are not in a position emotionally to engage in, in these important conversations with people they disagree with. Um, I always feel the need when I, when this topic comes up to clarify that this is really on a person by person basis. And if you don't feel like you are in a place emotionally to engage with conservatives or neo-Nazis or transphobes, then you shouldn't, you need to take care of yourself first and foremost. Right. And so please don't hear this and feel personally attacked because you are not in a place emotionally or you have the the bandwidth to be able to do that. It is the moral objection to it that I have a problem with, not the not the personal object. You know, you see what I'm saying? It isn't some people just shouldn't engage in that because that's not their I guess calling it isn't it isn't what they're good at or they are still healing from trauma or what have you but um that's very different from the moral objection saying you shouldn't talk to these people because you get some kind of contamination from them there's a great book I recommended it recently on a reading list I made publicly available books I recommended for people during lockdown and it's called The War for Empathy. And again, I, I'm terrible. I'm, I'm amazed I remember the book title. I usually just remember the co contents and forget the title and the author. Let me Sadly it enough, it's bad for uh, it's bad for discussion. But um, it, it it was a it was a great book that and it talked about uh, uh, people reforming themselves from hate movements and stuff like that, and people mm -hmm. who were then uh, working towards different goals and working with people uh to bring to also bring them out of like hate movements neo-nazi groups things like that uh engage with them and and get them to to have a different understanding of the world and some of the progress they've really made with some people and they were finding that you know half of or probably more than half of you know 
the most discernible reasons that people were involved in these things to begin with really weren't rooted in uh, animosity towards the people they were directing it at. It had to do a lot with with other issues or, hmm. you know, other understandings that these people had. Um, but it, it did show that, you know, the kind of uh, real turnaround moments for some of these people uh, there was a particular guy who, uh, who, uh, you know, was, was some neo-Nazi out of Toronto or something like that. And now he heads up some group that, you know, specifically works towards, uh, bringing people out of hate movements and things like that. And the most defining moment for him, I think was when he, uh, he had some dialogue with a, with a Jewish guy. I guess he didn't even realize the guy was Jewish at first, but had befriended him and then talked with him for a while. And, uh, the guy kind of uh, eventually when he came out with it kind of laughed off the fact that this guy was neo-Nazi and just discussed things with him further and just really got him to think about things and come out of things and really mm. changed his life and turned things around. Uh, I, I, it's, a, it's a really good book. I think people should read it. Of course, you know, I wouldn't recommend anybody really engage in discussion with people who are really in that still in that uh, entrenched mindset where they're they just want to go to battle and they want to you know and they're going to be extreme no matter what they're going to double down and they might uh be a threat to your own safety you know and and i'm, I'm not saying i'm not saying that there's no room for mockery either i think mockery can be corrective for people too when they're deeply entrenched and they are doubling down and all you can do is laugh at what they're saying and uh make them wither away and ridicule I, I think that hurts sometimes more than just being embattled in them and treating them as though their their opinions are are uh, are are valid or frightening to you in any way. Um, you know, I, I think that does have its place too. But I think ultimately yes. the goal should be to uh, allow people the room to change and give them the space to grow and give them a place to be if they ever get there. You know, I, I interviewed a guy several months ago named Vosh, and he's a, a YouTuber who's his whole his whole life, what all he does is he just fights Nazis online, but in a really, really productive way. And he, basically what he's doing is he's he de, he is de-radicalizing these kids. You know, they start with PewDiePie when they're eleven. Um, on YouTube, and then PewDiePie kind of funnels them to, you know, Nick Fuentes or or Ben Shapiro and all of these various figures, and and then it just keeps going darker from there. And what Vosh does through kind of these really savage theatrics of of mockery and debate, and he's really really good at it. Um, he he is channeling the he he is um, uh, de-radicalizing a lot of these kids, and so it definitely has a place. And I see what you're saying as falling right in line with the first tenet, which is one should strive to act with compassion and empathy towards all creatures. And I think, um, yeah, really powerful and beautiful. Well, there's there's a YouTuber out there. He's he's some black guy. And he goes out, he, he just meets, he just finds him. He, he goes out and he'll, he'll meet up with clan members and things like that. He'll just yeah. he'll go to their events <laughs> and he'll just 
he'll talk to them, you know, and uh, that's crazy. Yeah, no, but it's he's had great outcomes. He's really caused just so much confusion with people who who apparently got into this mindset where they weren't talking about actual people, you know, at a point when you're talking about, you know, a population, you lose the sense of the humanity of any individual in that population. Mm. So it can be really powerful to somebody just to introduce somebody to an individual from that population and then make them confront that face to face, you know, and realize that there's something, you know, that there's a lot more similarities and differences here and that the the differences are, are pretty negligible once you get down to actual conversation with somebody in the real world. And that's what he does. And it doesn't take long. And he's really, he's really had great results. And there again, this is somebody, you know, name I can't remember, but I really encourage people to look it up. But, uh, you know, I, I feel like that's, that's the thing, you know, <laughs> it is 100%. Well, and, and you know, I before I had my current blog and podcast, I was exclusively um, kind of a gay Christian writer. That was the the one thing that I wrote about, and I had a really really popular website, um, actually called Sacred Tension, and that actually it was the most successful thing I've ever done in my entire career as on, on the internet as a creator, um, and. That running that website is what convinced me once and for all that engaging with people actually matters and and to really resist this leftist cynicism. And I say that as someone who is on the left, but to really resist this leftist cynicism that just says, oh, no one can change. It's a futile battle. You're wasting your time. The number of people who I saw change their minds because of interact, I mean, I won't say because of interactions with me, but because of interactions with me and a lot of other people too. Um, the number of people who cha- who shifted from non-affirming of LGBT people to being affirming just staggered me. It was it blew my mind. The number of people I saw change, and. And it's like I can never, I, I just can't ever believe that those efforts aren't worth it because of that experience of running that website. It it completely blew my mind. The num- how almost how easy it was. You know, people are simple creatures. Usually, what people want is kindness. They people want to be heard. People want to be listened to. People are really simple creatures. They gravitate towards someone who's kind. And if you are kind and you listen and you talk and you try to hear their perspective and and if you fight with them some, but from a place of respect, a lot of people, not everyone, of course, and, and maybe not even most people, but a lot of people will find that compelling. It's, it's really easy. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it really is. And I think you know, it kind of brings it full circle and the damage of the uh, social media environment. But, you know, people get a lot more clicks and shares and attention when they post something terribly vitriolic, you know, when they're uncompromising and, you know, post those kinds of statements that pledge a, a tribal fealty over anything else, over an actual solution. And that's just that's just one of the reasons why you should delete your 
your Facebook account. One of many reasons. <laughs> Moral of the story. Okay, so to wrap things up, you have several pieces of homework. One, watch a movie by Neil Breen. Two, watch a movie by, uh, or just watch Gramps Goes to College. Um, three, watch, uh, oh, what was the other one? Um, uh, uh, God's Not Dead. Four, read Jaron Lanier's book. Ten, ten arguments why you should delete your social media accounts. And five, just go ahead and delete Facebook. It's not fucking worth it. Get that shit out of your life. All right, well, this has been two hours. I really did not mean to take up this much of your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, I, I, there's, I, there's one more homework thing. Oh, Let yes. See. I can find it here just at the moment, the empathy book I was talking about. Oh, it's The War for Kindness. And awesome. uh, the author is Jamil Zaki, if I'm pronouncing that right, probably not, but J-A-M-I-L-Z-A-K-I. Fabulous. So there you go. That, there you go. Excellent. So, you know, you're stuck in quarantine. You're, you're fucking your roommate. There's been that really strong sexual tension there between you for all these years, and now finally you're just... You're just having at it because there's nothing else to do than to just fuck your roommate and masturbate and whatnot. Now, maybe you're exploring some new weird fetish, some new kink. You're alone in your house and there's no one watching you except Facebook. And so you're finally, you know, exploring that that uh, what bizarre fetish. You, no one's judging you. Well, in addition to all that, you have all of these movies to watch and books to read. All right. Well, Lucian, this has been great. I really appreciate it. I've also been deliriously, drunkenly exhausted for the past, for the second half of the conversation. And so I really don't know what I was saying. And so you've been very patient with me. <laughs> no, thank you. It's been, it's been great. And as I said before, anytime. Awesome. All right. Well, that is it for this show. Also, just to clarify to my listeners, we did record this on April 27th. So if there are any calamitous events that have happened between now and when this show releases, if the zombies start coming out or if there are any new important developments on coronavirus, that's why we did not talk about them is because this this show will be coming out about three weeks after we record it. All right. Well, this show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long. The music is by The Jelly Rocks and 117. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The artwork is by Ramakrishna Das, and this is a production of Rock Candy Media. And as always, hail Satan. We'll see you next week. Peace out.